and good to know that the days of our lives that we can stand in the power of Christ. I thought it'd be appropriate this morning in keeping with Celebration Sunday as we not only celebrate what God has done for us and in this place in our lives, but also take a moment to um, just acknowledge that this is for Him and to dedicate it to Him. Um, you know, this is, this is His building. It's His people and uh, it's His church. And, um, and I think just in a prayer of dedication, it'd be appropriate to acknowledge that. I wonder if you would, if, just in agreement, if you would just join me and maybe, maybe just holding out your palms in, a, in just kind of a posture of, Lord, we give this to you. Um, this, is, this is your building. We, we already have, but we want to just acknowledge that. So would you just pray with me in that posture? Lord, um, we do just, just assume a posture of, of surrender and of giving this to you, Lord. Um, Lord, you've, you've so kindly and graciously uh, provided for us, and we're just deeply grateful for that. But God, we want this place to be a place where, uh, where people's lives are touched, um, where, where freedom is experienced in fresh and new ways, Lord, where people mature in their faith and where they come to know you in a greater measure. Lord, I pray um, that this would be a place where children's hearts are turned to you, uh, where children come to the realization of how much you love them and how much you care for them, um, that they would begin to understand the, the truths of who you are and the truths of your word. God, that, that you would raise up in this place young men and women who will walk with you with integrity and with a deep faith that, that change the world that they live in. God, I pray that you would take this place, it's just a building, but God, that you would do things with it that go into eternity, that you would use the simple and the, the human efforts here to do something that is amazing and supernatural and eternal, and God, only you can. God, keep doing what you have begun here. Complete this work in, in this place and these lives and from, from generation to generation. Lord, I don't uh, I just ask that this would not be the last generation that experiences your power and your, your work in this place, Lord, but that it would continue on from generation to generation. God, I pray that those little ones that are in class right now, that they would grow up to be the leaders of this church and other churches and be leaders in their community uh, because of the truths that you taught them here. And so, God, we dedicate this place to you all for the glory of your name and all for the honor and the praise because you and you alone are worth it. And then, Lord, as we open your word here in a moment, would you open our hearts? Would you continue to teach us the truths of your word as only you can? And we love you, and we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you're new here this morning, my name is Floyd. And uh, I do the majority of the preaching and the teaching here at Cornerstone. We've been working our way through 2 Samuel, and uh, we went through 1 Samuel. We're now at chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. And, um, and I'm just really grateful to be at this, this place this morning, not necessarily up in the front, but to be at a place in our church's history like we are. Um, I felt like in some ways I should start mentioning names of people who have contributed so much in the last six months, six to eight months of getting this edition done. I'm not going to do that because I'll miss somebody. But you know who you are. People have given, you've, you've offered your finances, your time, 
and investments of, of energy, and um, I just deeply, deeply appreciate it. Um, we are so close to being done. I was hoping that the carpet would be all done by this Sunday. Um, it will by next Sunday. And as if you've been coming here, you know this has been happening in stages. It's okay, and we're enjoying it. So we are in 2 Samuel this morning, chapter 13. I'm going to take all of the verses of 2 Samuel 13. If you know, this is in the context of chapters 11 and 12, chapter 11 being where David falls into sin, the sin of adultery, um, dishonesty, and then also murder as he commits adultery with Bathsheba, sends her husband Uriah out to die. It's a difficult, difficult passage, 2 Samuel 11 is. 2 Samuel 12 is where the prophet Nathan comes and he confronts David about his sin. And we find David responding in the best way possible, and that is with a heart of brokenness and repentance about his sin. He realizes that he has sinned against God, and he's broken, and he models for us what it looks like to acknowledge and repent of sin. This issue of sin is a human issue. It's not an American issue. It's not a conservative issue or a liberal issue. It's a human issue. It is, by definition, missing the mark, rebelling from the holiness of God, violating His holiness. There's a number of different terms that can be used. But this issue of sin plagues all of us since the first sin. Since Adam and Eve first rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3, where you find them disobeying what God had clearly told them, and you find that now sin and death are on the earth. And this continues throughout all of humanity. This is the first truth of the gospel, is that we are born sinners, and that we continue to sin, and that we are incapable of fixing our own sin, and that it is impossible for us to even pay for our own sin. Because the wages, Romans says, the book of Romans says, of sin is death. And that is our rightful payment for our rebellion against God. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, I know I'm not a perfect person, but I don't think I've rebelled. I don't know that I've really rebelled. As kindly as possible, can I tell you, you have. All of us have. Isaiah says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned aside to our own way. We've been naturally self-centered and selfish, and we've worshipped ourselves. And when the blatant disregard of God's righteous standard enters King David's house, and the prophet Nathan comes to him, and he corrects him, David is deeply repentant, he experiences sorrow, God clearly forgives him, but Nathan also makes it clear that there will be some consequences. And that sin never touches 
our lives without also leaving pain and without leaving consequences. And that the consequences were going to continue in David's family, in his household. And we come to 2 Samuel chapter 13, and we see that prophecy being fulfilled. In 2 Samuel 13, and we're going to read the entire text, one of the things that I notice in this passage is that it is godless. There is no mention of God anywhere in this passage. In fact, I found myself at the beginning of the week looking at this passage and thinking, maybe this is one we should just skip over. Like, how in the world am I supposed to point to the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a godless story, in godless days that are described in this story? Most of us, all of us who are here, lived through the last several years where we saw things happening in our world that were unsettling. Times when we didn't know which voices we could trust. Times when voices that we thought we could trust turned out to be untrustworthy. People doing unsettling things. The, the tenets of a strong society being attacked and shaken. And there have been moments where most of God's children, if not all of us, have at points said, God, where are you in this? How are we to find you in times that are confusing and that are dark and we're not sure where the truth is and where it's not, where people disappoint us, where sometimes we disappoint ourselves? And where is God in that? And we find toward the end of this story a moment where David and his household, it says, lifted up their voices and wept bitterly in that sense of, God, where are you in this story? Why do these things happen? What's going on? And there's some principles that I think we'll find in this story as we go through. But there's also an element of this story, and I'm going to get to it in a few moments, that I think will turn us to Jesus and to the gospel. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you go to 1 Samuel chapter 13, and I'd like to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to allow the, the, um, the gentleman in the back to just go ahead and keep advancing the screen as we read the text. It's 39 verses, but it's one of those stories that I don't know where to start and stop. Every detail of this story sort of needs the details ahead of it and behind it. It's built, it builds on itself, and it's quite a story. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Ammon, David's son, loved her. And Ammon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, 
I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Can you see where this story is turning? So there's Amnon. He's got a half-sister. Tamar describes her as very beautiful. Um, Amnon is obsessed with her, even to the point the narrator describes that he was becoming ill with his obsession. And so Jonadab, his buddy, gives him terrible advice, which is to figure out a way to manipulate the situation in order to act out on what was in his mind. So we'll pick it up in verse 6. So Amnon is pretending to be sick. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple cakes in my sight, that I might eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. When she brought them near him, he took hold of her hand. He took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. So Amnon carries out his plan, and you kind of think at different points in this story why didn't somebody say, this is weird behavior? What's behind this? Why is Amnon insisting that Tamar come and bake cakes in front of him? And what's even more odd is why is he insisting to be alone with her? And that should have raised some red flags. That should have caused some people to say, something's not right here. He shouldn't be with her alone He's acting really odd. And out of a sense of protection for Tamar, somebody probably should have stepped up and said, let's not allow this to happen. If there's anyone who had some insight into what was going on, it was Jonadab. And he's guilty by association, in my opinion. He helped create the situation. But here we find ourselves in verse 14, where now Amnon has raped his sister, his half-sister, Tamar she's asking him just do something 
even remotely honorable, get permission from the king. He would have actually been allowed to marry his half-sister. It wasn't advisable, but it would have been allowable. But he was so consumed with the, the longing and the desire for her sexually that he rapes her. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. You kind of expect Amnon now to have some sense of satisfaction. That's not what happens. Verse 15, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had, with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. And she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away is greater... For this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his, king, so his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And Tamar is overcome with the grief of what's happened, because now she's violated. In that culture, she's, she's dirty by no choice of her own. And Amnon, with zero honor, sends her out, and, it, and interestingly enough, the narrator gives us some interesting details, like they bolted the door after her. Complete rejection. Complete dismissal. He's used her, and now he's rejected her. Verse 20, And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother, do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. I don't like that part of the story. I don't like the part of the story where Absalom realizes what's happened to Tamar. And he says, just hold your peace. You can live here. He says she just stayed with her full brother, Absalom. I don't like the part of the story where it says that King David heard and was angry, but he didn't do anything. It was upsetting, but he didn't take action. And as we're going to continue reading, I don't think anyone else liked that part of the story either. There is a sense of injustice that we come to at this story and at this part of the story that should feel wrong to us. We should not read this story and get to this part of the story and say, well, I guess that's just the way it was. It's not okay. It's not okay. And if you're here this morning and you've ever been taken advantage of, especially in this kind of, a, of an abuse situation, it's not okay. And at no point should somebody say, well, 
it's just what men do. Or you just kind of got to make your peace with it. It's not okay. It cries for justice. There is a cry for justice. And I believe that cry for justice is something that God puts in us. We long for it. We want to see it made right. It's not okay for the powerful to take advantage of the powerless. Tension is building. And now there's a white space. If you're carrying a physical Bible, you see a white space between verse 22 and verse 23. That white space represents two years. We're going to pick it up two years later, verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's son, sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go out with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant? So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. And while they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. You understand what's happened? Absalom's finally taking matters into his own hands. It's two years, but he hasn't forgotten. Hasn't forgotten what happened to his sister. His sister Tamar was living with him in her desolation. Every day Absalom gets up and he is reminded in a fresh way of what happened to his sister Tamar. And that, that his brother, his half-brother Amnon did this to her. He's not forgetting it. It's not out of sight, out of mind for Absalom. And he lays in wait, and he takes justice in his own hands. King David is told that all of his sons are dead. And we pick it up in verse 32, and here comes his character, Jonadab, again. But Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came, lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmia, the son of Amahud, king of Geshar, 
and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshar, and there was three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. You understand why we almost had to read the whole story? It's all built on top of each other. And it ends up with King David mourning along with his sons that are alive and with him, lifting up their voices, weeping bitterly, distraught over what's happened. There's probably more sorrow and weeping there than just the death of Amnon. They're grieving an entire situation, all of which has just gone haywire. There is, there is a godless mercy. There's a godless justice. And there is a godless um, grief in that. If you could go ahead and advance that. There's a godless mercy, a godless justice, and a godless grief. And what I mean by this is when Amnon commits his sin of rape, he was showing mercy, but not because of God's mercy. It was because they didn't want to deal with it. It was a cowardly mercy. It was the kind of mercy that just turns a blind eye to something that's not the way it should be. And it's not the kind of mercy that we long for. We're not looking for a mercy that is intentionally blind and ignorant. When justice is served by Absalom, it's not the kind of justice that God intends. It's vigilante justice. It's bitter Absalom saying, I will take matters into my own hands. I'll take care of this. It's godless justice. And when they grieve at no point, do you see them acknowledging God in their grief? It is just simply a grief and a longing that things would not be the way they are, wishing that things were not the way they were, wishing that Amnon wasn't laying dead, wishing that Absalom wasn't in hiding, wishing that Tamar had not lost her purity, wishing, wishing, and wishing. It's a godless grief. And you don't see hope in their grief. You don't really see hope in this passage. And maybe we should just have a closing prayer and leave you go, I'll go home hopeless. But we're not going to. Several principles that I want to point to in this passage. Principle number one, sinful imagination becomes sinful manifestation. Here's what I mean by that. There's a process of, of descent into this act of rape that Amnon commits. It begins between his ears. He starts thinking about Tamar in inappropriate ways, and he obsesses over that. He is thinking constantly about her, it says, to the point that he is making himself ill. And because he allows this to go on and on and on in his mind, eventually it comes into action. 
It comes out in a sinful, violent action against Tamar. But it started here. It started in his mind. You know, I believe there's a reason that Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He said that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty for their tearing down of strongholds. And he acknowledges that there are spiritual strongholds that exist in people's lives. Places where it seems like evil has more control than God does. Places where the enemy seems to just be able to plague our lives. We call those strongholds a, a place of our lives. It may be your sexuality. It, may be your, it might be your money. It could be your marriage. I don't know where it's at, but it could be something where it's like the devil just seems to have access to my life in this particular area. We call that a stronghold. And Paul shepherds the Corinthian church in that moment, and he says, and as they address these strongholds, he says, take your thoughts captive and bring them into the obedience of Christ. And Paul is shepherding the Corinthian church in that moment. He's saying, when these sinful thoughts begin to take root in your mind and you find yourself walking around, maybe it's a, maybe it's a sin of bitterness. You're just mad at somebody, and you walk around arguing with them, and you're winning every one of those arguments in your head, and you really, you really give it to them. I mean, you really shame them. You make them feel terrible about themselves, and you feel good about that. And Paul's saying, no, take those thoughts captive. Don't let those thoughts run. And maybe it's thoughts of lust. Maybe it's thoughts of greed. It's like, man, I would do anything to get a hold of that, fill in the blank. Maybe it's thoughts of dishonesty. I don't know what the particular sin is, but it always starts in our head. It always starts there. It started that way for Amnon, and it does for us too. And strongholds are built into our lives because we allow our thoughts to just run freely, and we're not supposed to. We're supposed to take them captive, as Paul told the Corinthian church. And he says, take your thoughts captive and bring them into the obedience of Christ. And it literally looks like insisting that my thoughts not run wherever they want to run. You know, it's not wise to allow those thoughts to go wherever they want to go. Point number two, sin that is ignored becomes a sin that is in charge. Sin that is ignored becomes a sin that is in charge. David's choice to ignore the sin of Amnon gave sovereignty to the sin in that story. It gave authority to the sin. At some point, the sin of Amnon begins to write the story because now it's determining and defining everything that's going on in the story. Now, all of a sudden, Absalom's response, David's grief, the servants of David, it affects the entire nation of Israel. All of this is happening. Why? Because this sin was ignored. Because it was allowed to just keep building. And it was allowed to just keep going. And I know, as someone who has filled and continues to fill positions of leadership as a father, pastor, whatever, that it's often easier to ignore sin than it is to address it. Nobody likes to have their sin addressed. But can I talk to you dads for just a little bit? There's a time 
and the earlier the better, that if you will address potential problems and choose not to ignore them, you'll be grateful later. And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. It's always easier to ignore it because it's the path of least resistance. But if you ignore it, it begins to write the story. And it begins to take a life of its own. That attitude, that defiance that you see, it will not go away by ignoring it. It won't. It doesn't happen in my life. In a very personal way, you may be saying, well, yeah, I've got some stuff in my life. I know it isn't the way it should be, and I don't know that I'd really want to call it sin because I don't like that word very much, but I just know I've kind of got some stuff that I, I, I wish was a little different than it is. Listen, if you ignore it, it will begin to write your story. It will take charge. It will gain dominance. That's what Paul was talking about when he says, don't, don't let sin, sin have dominion in your life. So don't give it dominance. Address it. Like, well, I don't know, I mean, I don't, I've got some attitudes. Like, there's some people I don't like, you know, and I kind of have a thing against them, but, you know, I don't, I don't really want to, I don't really want to call it sin. I don't, I don't know that I'm really bitter. Listen, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it unless you want it to take charge. And I promise you, you don't. Point number three compassion at the expense of justice just enables more sin. David's not wanting to see any of his sons suffer. Of course he doesn't want to see his sons suffer. Who would want to see your children suffer? I don't. David doesn't. He loves his children. But you understand the position that David's suddenly in? He wants more than anything to show compassion to his sons. He wants them not to suffer. Even though... Amnon especially has done some stuff that is egregious. There should be some suffering. But David's in a position where he doesn't want to see Amnon suffer. And if you're wondering if I'm right about David's view of his sons, look at his response when he thinks all of his sons have been killed. He is brokenhearted. David genuinely loves his children. And he doesn't want to see it happen. But is at the expense of of justice, of doing the right thing. And because David chooses to extend compassion at the expense of justice, he actually creates a scenario where sin begins to multiply, where now it's not just dishonesty, and then it's rape, and then it's murder, and it's grief. And David finds himself at the end of this story, never Never again is he going to have a conversation with Amnon and his son Absalom is away from his presence. And David, it says, mourns the situation. He mourns the situation. Now, again, parents, you know how difficult this is. I remember a number of years ago, my daughter, uh, Audrey, was, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years old, and um, 
And I, I don't even remember why I had sharpened a hatchet, but I just did. I think I was clearing, you know, some brush or something. I sharpened a hatchet. I had, that, I had that baby sharp. I mean, the kind of sharp that it's dangerous. And then I looked at Audrey, who happened to be standing there, and I said, don't ever play with this. Don't touch this hatchet. Well, in a kid's mind, you know what that means? I must play with the hatchet. I have to. Got to have it. And sure enough, I, I don't know if it was the next day or a couple days later, I got a call at work, and hey, Audrey, I think, chopped her toe off. Well, she didn't chop her toe off, but she about did. She chopped a pretty good chunk of meat out of it. And I came home from work and did my, my wonderful dad-doctor duty, you know, cleaned it all up, put it all back in, super glued it all together, <laughs> and... Um, and said, there, isn't that better? And it wasn't until later that I found out that her siblings thought I handled that situation terribly because I allowed her to lay on the couch the rest of the day and watch movies. And they were like, you rewarded her for her disobedience. <laughs> I said, you know what? Parenting is hard. <laughs> it just is. <laughs> And I don't claim to get it right all the time. You're like, she blatantly disobeyed you, and you glued it all together, and then you let her just lay there and watch movies. And then to make it worse, they weren't allowed to sit there and watch movies with her. They had to go outside and play, you know? It's horrible justice. I don't know. Fortunately, God's pretty gracious in our parenting and the kind of fills in some gaps where we messed it up from time to time. But the stakes in this story are pretty high. David shows compassion at the expense of justice. And this is the point where I suddenly realize this story is actually a giant arrow pointing to the gospel. Because all of us struggle with the tension of compassion mercy, and justice. And at no point in our human experience do we find those two things meeting in perfect harmony until we come to Calvary. Until we come to the cross of Jesus Christ and we find Jesus hanging there out of love and compassion for humanity, for you and I, out of mercy in our sins because he knows that we are broken and that we are sinful and that we are incapable of getting ourselves right with God. We can't do enough good. We can't get it right enough. And in his mercy, he addresses what we deserve and he pays the price. And justice is discovered at Calvary. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is an incredibly powerful statement. For our sake, for our sake, what did you do to deserve this? 
Why would God send Jesus? Why would Jesus come and suffer and die for our sake? Like, well, we're pretty good people. No, we're not. We're not. We are naturally rebellious against God. Romans 5 says that while we were dead in our sins, that he came. That we had nothing to offer him. But he still says that he did it for our sake. And he made Jesus to be sin, even though he didn't know sin. Even though he had no sin in him, even though he was perfect, he was fully God and fully man, and yet God placed on him our sins, your sins and my sins, the worst moment of your life he placed on the shoulders of Jesus. And he placed that there as though he was guilty of our sin in order so that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know how you define yourself, but most of us, if you asked us who we are, we would not say, well, we are the righteousness of God. We have discovered God's righteousness, but because of Calvary, because of the cross, because Jesus came and he died for you and for me, we can literally be seen by God as righteous, as being sinless, and as being clean. That's why he can say in 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where he says that if we will confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And I want to go back to this story in 2 Samuel chapter 13 in that moment where David and his sons are lifting up their voices. They're weeping and they're grieving the situation. And there is in their grief, there is this longing for something to bring together these, these tensions, these competing longings, the longing for mercy and the longing for justice. And I want to sit down with David and his sons in that moment and say, lift up your eyes. Wipe your tears. There is one coming, his name is Jesus, and he will find in him complete mercy and justice. You will find the mercy you're longing for, and you will find perfect justice, and his name is Jesus, and we discover it on the cross of Calvary. That's my sermon in a sentence. In perfect compassion and justice, our freedom from sin has been purchased at Calvary. Do you know in a very personal way the freedom from sin that Jesus purchased at Calvary? Do you know that you are forgiven? Have you, cleansed, have you been cleansed of your sins? Or are you like Amnon, still rolling them around in your mind? You may be here this morning and saying, I know I'm saved, but if I'm completely honest, I've really been entertaining some stuff in my mind. This is the point where you, because of you being a child of God, you have the freedom to say, Jesus, I need help. Help me. And then get up tomorrow and say, help me. And when those thoughts come, you ask for help. And don't allow those thoughts to just run freely. They'll destroy you. They will turn into actions. I promise. You're not an exception somehow. All of us stand in need of the forgiveness and cleansing of Jesus Christ at Calvary. Compassion met justice, and it was perfect. And because of that, there is no sin that you and I need to hide. We can't hide it anyway. Oh, we try. Why would we want to hide it? I want 100% of my sin addressed at 
the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't want to hide anything from God, and neither should you. There's a few study questions, and I want to bring this to a close. Wherever you're at in your story, I hope it's not as dark as 2 Samuel 13. I hope that you're not at that place. But quite frankly, even if you are, there is forgiveness. There is cleansing through Jesus. And what looks like a godless story in the Old Testament is actually a story that creates this deep longing within us for a Savior who knows every rotten thing about us, who knows every awful thought that we've had, and who still chose to die in our behalf, who loved us, who continues to love us, who for our sake became sin, who knew no sin, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. And that he offers to you and I the cleansing from sin so complete and so full that we could stand before God one day and that he will see us in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And that he will declare us righteous, not because we've been such good people, but because he's such a good savior. And because his work is complete. And because mercy and justice meet in perfection. Man, don't you want to go back and tell David, a day is coming when this deep longing you have is suddenly realized. When this tension you feel is suddenly resolved. Because there was another dark moment that also seemed godless to the people there. To those who stood there and watched Jesus die, Scripture describes a moment where the sun went dark and the earth shook and people had to have looked at each other and thought, where is God in this? We thought this was the promised Messiah. We thought he was it. Where is God in this? And you may have had some days, maybe even recently, where you've stepped back and said, God, I don't know where you're at. I don't see you here. I don't see you at work. But I hope you were paying attention last Sunday. Because those people also saw an empty tomb. They saw a God who could not be held down by sin and death. They saw a God who rose victorious over sin and death. And that's not just a fact in history. That's a promise to you and I. It's a promise that if you and I will confess our sins, that he is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and he gives us new life. And if you're here this morning, you've never experienced that, it's very simple. I just invite you to pray, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. And I want to be cleansed of all of that. I want to be cleansed of all the dirt and the sin. You know, make you Lord of my life. Give, make me a new person. That's the gospel. And it's so simple. And if you're here this morning, you're like, I'm a believer. But honestly, I need to step back. I don't want sin to take charge of the story. I want Jesus to. 
And you just say, Lord, you know some things that are going on, and I don't want that stuff to have, have power and dominion in my life. Amber, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up, I want to bring us to a close. So what I like to do this morning is just, um, Amber, if you want to just play for a little bit, I'm just going to allow you in the, in the space that you're in, we're just going to bow our heads and just, just have um, just nothing for a moment. And allow you, just between you and God, do you know that you've experienced the mercy and the justice of God? And ask God to search your heart and just respond with simple surrender. I'm just going to give you some, just a little bit of silence in, in your seat um, and, and then I'll pray. Like David said in one of the Psalms, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And so, Lord, we open our, ourselves to you, and um, God, give us a, help us to hate sin the way you hate it. Lord, because of the finished work of the cross and the empty tomb, in faith, we believe that you have forgiven us and that you've given us new life. Lord, I pray um, for each of us here. God, help us to walk in, in greater freedom. Help us to honor you with the decisions of our lives. And help us, Lord, never to allow sin to take root and to begin to dominate in our lives. We want to walk with integrity before you with an openness and with a life that attracts other people to you. God, thank you for Calvary. Thank you that you have not ignored my sin, but you've forgiven it. Thank you, God, for the empty tomb that you give me new life. God, we are deeply grateful and we worship you as a God of new beginnings. We love you. Pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.